You're listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network with Nikki Stott. I'd like to pay my respects to country and to all the elders past, present and emerging who've been part of the struggle for so long for sovereignty and self-determination. Urban Tilth is a project that began in 2005 as a community-owned not-for-profit urban farm and they've since continued to diverge in schools, community gardens, small urban farms and numerous other community-owned and operated initiatives including grocery store, bicycle and local farming cooperatives as well as community and school-based training and agricultural programs and broader grassroots networks and coalitions all with a focus on building community-owned and controlled initiatives around food equity, sovereignty and local self-sufficiency. Interestingly, Urban Tilth is primarily located in the San Francisco Bay Area, in the culturally diverse and historically underprivileged city of Richmond, right under the shadow of Chevron's massive crude oil refinery, renowned for its dirty practices and toxic fumes. Doria Robinson is the Executive Director at Urban Tilth and she spoke earlier this year at the Community Alliance for Global Justice about the desperate urgency of dismantling extractive economies and recreating our cultures of resistance as we move towards systemic change as the logical solution to climate justice and food security and sovereignty. So... I wondered what it was that I could share, you know? I I could share the story of of Urban Tilth, and I will a little bit. And I really wanted to talk about climate, just because it's just so pressing. But I I felt like I needed to start with something that could anchor us, (laughs) that anchors me, and that's soil. And I'm actually not going to talk about it a whole lot, but I wanted to start with this and, it, and it's just so perfect, you know, and the hands are holding this little, perfect little seedling, and it's all very clean, and you actually don't see anything living in the soil, and that's not really the kind of soil that I'm in love with. That's not the soil that I think about when I'm like, you know, I'm so happy to be a human being on earth, you know, because there's no pictures of the kind of soil that I feel like we need to keep in our minds and our hearts as we face huge challenges. There's not an image that I can really draw on out there that really captures the life and the complexity of soil. So I'm actually going to start with groceries. I'm going to start with groceries for unreasonable prices. $10.99 for a gallon of milk. $11.99 for a box of Cheerios. $10.15 for orange juice, but hey, it's on sale for $9.54. These were real prices. I just took a a trip to Bethel, Alaska, and these are the the prices (laughs) in the Bethel store for (laughs) Bethel's in the house Um, for food. You know, for food that is actually not traditional food. And the painful thing is that we were invited to come up and kind of take a journey with Yupik people to hear their story and hear how they're facing and how they're dealing with food sovereignty and climate change. And the first thing that we really landed on was the reality of 
inequity of forced economy, like an economy forced on them that has nothing to do with their traditional food ways or, or their sovereignty, right? So it really made this enormous impression on me. The contradiction, the, the contrast between the stories that I was listening to from people who, who grew up in Bethel or in villages who are beyond Bethel and the fight that they're having for their language and their culture and their, and their lives, really. We went up river, and, you know, it, it's pretty a profound experience. But as we were going up, people are telling stories to us, you know, not just about the land and kind of about, about the big nature out there, but about the fish camps and how it was the last day of, of King Salmon uh, season, and it was actually cut really short, and so all the fish camps were empty. Like, they were all empty. And if you can put together that in the grocery store your milk is ten ninety nine, you know, and that people depend on salmon, like it really, it really, they really, really do. And then the fish camps are empty. This trip upriver was just really painful, beautiful and painful. We also visited some villages, one village in particular, who were basically trying to save their village from slowly falling into the river. All these sandbags are actually their attempt to keep the bank from eroding out from underneath their houses. They're literally trying to keep their villages out of the water. 90 degrees in Anchorage last week. We went to a, a place at an old school for, for indigenous children, you know, kind of forced school, and just kind of walked out onto the area where it would be permacross and kind of put our hands down on the earth. And they were like, you know, normally you'd be able to kind of dig down and the permafrost would be right there, but it's not. It's not there. They talked about how the, the river, which is the only way up to villages, kind of up, up river, you know, you can't, there's no roads there. You have to either fly in or take a boat. And then in the winter, it freezes over and people will drive on the rivers to get up to other villages. But it's like that time when you can actually take a vehicle on the river is getting later and later and later every year. The impact of climate change on this one particular culture was, the only word I have for it is just really painful. We kind of go about our business thinking about food and foodways and agroecology and agriculture, but this kind of thing is happening all across the world. Thousands of people impacted. When I think of food sovereignty... And when I think of what's meant by agroecology, I think just relationship. Relationship to other beings. Relationships to our brothers and sisters who are not human. And it's a profound, long, long relationship that we've had that's only really been kind of crushed in this last, you know, hundred years. And I, I kind of wanted to start here so we remember what we're losing. 
when we remember what we're fighting for. We fight for the right things when it comes to just transition and not just something that's more closer to a concession. We had the really profound pleasure of being a part of ceremony and dances different nights while we were in Bethel. And it just reminded me, too, that you can't really have this conversation about climate and food without having a conversation about culture. So why was I even in Alaska? You know, here I am, this urban agriculture person, grew up in Richmond, California. Why am I in Alaska with uh, you big people learning about their culture, learning about sovereignty, learning about the impact of climate change? Um, It's actually because uh, a foundation who had the forethought to actually bring together four communities from across the United States to actually look at the lens, look at their work in this lens of climate. Um, So a number of different communities working in Alaska on food, on, on energy, on a number of different things having to do with climate change, having to do with just living a right life in the world. Um, Kentucky, you know, with this whole history of coal mining and, um, kind of trying to figure out what just transition looks like for them. Buffalo, New York, and their history with steel and uh, and energy in other ways. And then Richmond, California, which is where I'm from. And if you know Richmond, usually the only thing you really know about Richmond is either it's crime, That it's the home of the Chevron refinery, the biggest point source pollution uh, of greenhouse gas emissions in the state of California. Um, That it blew up (laughs) and caught on fire in September 18th in 2017, blackening the skies across the San Francisco Bay Area. You might know that it's right across the bay from San Quentin. So we get a lot of folks who are coming out of San Quentin, relocated in Richmond. You might know that it's one of the poorest places in the Bay Area, a majority-minority city. I always think of it as growing up on on the front lines, right? Because I I literally grew up five blocks from this refinery. This was my view out of the window of my bedroom. It's, It's something to have a default where you don't really question things like, refineries blowing up. I mean, this wasn't the first time that this happened. This is the first time it made the news like that. But I remember many, many times where there was fires. One time when a, a fire at the refinery actually ate the paint off of our cars. And they would always kind of set up, you know, little centers at the different community centers. You'd go down, you would apply f- for money to be able to, you know, get some little references. But they give you like, you know, I think we got $500 to repaint our car. And it took like, you know, almost eight months to get that $500. And I remember my mom finally got the check, and she was like, well, what are they going to do about our lungs? The culture in Richmond is that we don't question it. It's just the way it is. Not only is it just the way it is, but Chevron does things like gives backpacks to kids, you know, (laughs) hands out a few small, you know, kind of scholarships. And so people feel like, you know, they're doing good in the community. But they don't really question this relationship. This billion-dollar company is sitting in the backyard of one of the poorest places in in, in the state. And there is no change 
and no questioning that there's no responsibility for what they spew in the air on our lungs. You have some of the highest asthma rates, some of the highest cancer rates. There's no relationship. There's one grocery store for 100,000 people. The culture is that we are less than them and that we have to accept or work harder because obviously whatever is going wrong in the world has to do with us. I feel like climate change (laughs) is this thing that, that actually brought together a number of different things that have been happening for a long time. Not only do I feel like this, but that is what it is. So often when we think about climate change, we think about it in the realm of energy. They are, you know, extracting gas from the earth. They're getting oil, oil, making gas in Richmond, refining, refining it in Richmond and sending it all around. It's all about energy. It's all about fuel. We have to change our energy. We need electric cars. We need, you know, we need, you know, this. And I, I'm not saying we don't need electric cars, but I'm actually saying, or, or bicycles, but I'm actually saying the problem is deeper. And it started happening, this started happening well before oil. I'm saying that this actually had its roots in things like the steam engine, not because steam is bad, but because of the way it's being applied to the world, how, how it is an expression of our culture, of this culture. I'm saying that it started in colonialism, in the extraction of slave labor, the stealing of people, right? The stealing of people and bringing them over to do work. Like there is something else going on that is the driver in this phenomena that's causing so much current pain. These massive storms, the desertification, the the fires in California and, and all across the West, right? It's not just energy. It's actually, in my opinion, a culture. You're listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network and we're hearing from Doria Robinson from Urban Tilth speaking at the Community Alliance for Global Justice about the desperate urgency of dismantling extractive economies and recreating our cultures of resistance as we move towards systemic change as a logical solution to climate justice and food security and sovereignty. So there's this big question about transition and whether or not it will be just. And I say we're kind of jumping ahead Like, we don't even understand or really embrace the true root causes of the things that we're facing, and we don't even understand the great complexity of the things that we're facing. People are, like, you know, embracing this idea that we have to have a transition or else we're all going to die because we we can't sustain this path. (laughs) Human beings can't sustain this path on Earth, right? And then some people are saying, and that transition must be just. And I'm saying we actually can't even get to the just transition until we understand what justice is and where injustice comes from. And I want to pose to you about this concept of extraction, that our economy is using this lens 
of extraction. It's a tool of capitalism, the way that we practice capitalism. And the root problem is that there's a philosophy behind it that you can just continually extract with no consequence. And actually, that's the point, right? Like, you're actually practicing it correctly if you're increasing, constantly ever increasing your profits, no matter what the consequence, because the consequence, as long as it doesn't show up on your books, is fine. Chevron is fine to spew and spew and spew as long as they don't have to be held accountable for it, as long as it doesn't show up on their books, right? We're all fine to live our lives however we feel like it. Do whatever it is that makes us feel comfortable. How we've been accultured, how we've been cultured to live our lives, as long as we don't have to be the ones in Bethel dealing with the impacts of our actions. Extraction is a huge part of our culture. Shows up in a whole bunch of different ways right? It's not just energy. It's the way that we actually run our agriculture, our big ag. It's all about trying to extract as, as much crop, as much yield as possible, no matter what we do to, to get there. You know, GMOs, the pesticides, no matter what it is, it shows up over and over again. This is our culture. They're doing it right, extracting, privatizing it, and then maximizing the profit. So I I wanted to bring this up because I wanted to share something I felt was really real and really important and really hard because it's hard to change culture. It's hard to change the ways we live our lives, the way we've been taught to live our lives. But I feel like that actually is the just transition. Yes, it will show up in the Green New Deal in specific things that make sure to be inclusive of communities that have been historically left out of the economy, who have, you know, grassroots solutions and whatnot. Yes, that is a part of it too. But if we don't actually, every single one of us, not just people in frontline communities, address and, and confront this issue of our culture. <laughs> Just transition is just going to be, you know, a concession. Most of the transition will just be the way that every single thing else runs. Some corporation somewhere will put solar panels everywhere. And, 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 and there will be some part of it that is still driven by extraction. Where were those panels made? Who gets that money? Who decided? Who was involved in those decisions? Probably not democratic. Probably having some externalities somewhere. You know, maybe not here, not in front of our faces, but it's there. So I wanted to bring this up and just make sure that as we're thinking about culture, agriculture, you know, food sovereignty, that we're really thinking holistically. So this notion that food sovereignty through agroecology is the solution to the broken food system I say is, is kind of like a metaphor for almost everything that we, we need to do. Food sovereignty is basically democratically 
including everyone in the decision-making, the ownership, the relationship to place, the relationship not just to the food that you grow, not just to the crops, but to the whole systems that are related to it. And it's not just relationship, but I wanted to say that it's a interdependent relationship, a vulnerable, interdependent relationship with all of these things. It's also complex. So here goes soil again. Like what really is soil? It's a whole host of living beings with air, gases from the beginning of the universe, you know, crushed rock from the beginning of the universe. It's all of these different relationships. You know, some people eating other people, some people doing this, some people doing that. They're all kind of living together, creating this economy amongst them, each other. And it's like, this is the kind of thing that we don't, most people don't have a relationship to. Like, if you looked at this as a metaphor for the types of relationships you want to have in your life, maybe not exactly with soil, but with something, how many of us can say that we have this kind of detailed knowledge, interdependent relationship with something in our lives, with something that makes us accountable, besides our nuclear families, right? Those are the only kind of acceptable things that we can have that kind of relationship with, and sometimes not even that. So I wanted to end just by saying that, you know, we can't do everything. We try to do what we can. I love uh, this notion around the hummingbird. People heard that story before about hummingbird. Yes, no? No. So there's an African um, kind of a story about hummingbird and a, and a fire, a forest fire, a big fire. So it's a big fire happening, and all the animals are watching the fire. They're literally sitting, standing there, like in mouths gaping, watching the fire. And, and you know, there's elephant there, and there's, there's the lion there, and they're like, oh my God, everything's burning. What can we do? It's too big for us. It's too big. And then hummingbird is like, you know, it's a little tiny bird. Everybody knows hummingbirds are really tiny. And, and he is like, I'm going to do something. So he flies over to the river and he gets a drop of water and he flies to the fire and he drops the water on the fire. And he goes back and he keeps doing it and all the animals are like, what are you doing? You're too small. You can't make an impact. You know, as elephant who has this big trunk is standing there like, what are you doing? You can't make an impact. And all these other bigger animals who could do other things are just standing there and watching it burn. And the hummingbird was saying, you, it said, you know, well, this is what I can do. And so I'm going to do it. This is what I can do. And so I'm going to do it. And if more of us were like hummingbird, then maybe some of this stuff would get worked out. We need to do what we can do. <laughs> so this is what I do. <laughs> I grow food in the face of the biggest oil refinery in the state of California, the biggest point source emitter of greenhouse gases. We transform public land into places where healthy food grows. We dream up things like farms in the middle of cities, and and we make it happen slowly, carefully, you know, with community, with democratic process. 
we start farm stands and CSAs run by people from the community who have actually been trained to grow food, to run farm stands, to run CSAs. We do what we can, actually, to change our situation, to have that kind of self-determination, as much sovereignty as we can muster within the belly of this beast, right? Just inspiring the fire of young people, where you just really don't know how those seeds are going to work, what, what they're going to produce, right? We also have been taking really scary steps, but awesome steps to create relationships in our rural environments with young farmers and actually connecting them with our CSA and with our farm stands to actually create a local food system that shortens supply chains, reduces food miles, and actually employs people all along the way. What I wanted to try to offer today was was not so much this big notion of, you know, what agroecology is or what climate change is or, or you know, just what I wanted to do is say, what is your roadmap, hummingbird? <laughs> what is your roadmap, hummingbird? I wanted to ask you to embrace the complexity, to get in relationship with the beings around you. If you don't know your neighbors, get to know your neighbors. I feel like the one thing that we always kind of forget in our fights and in our battles, and I'm kind of going to end with this, is why we live at all. Like, what is this life about? When we come to the end of our lives, are we going to remember our electric car? Are we going to remember, you know, the school that we went to or the great job that we got? What is it that's going to be the thing that we remember? And I imagine it's probably going to be the relationships. Whatever energy you put into those relationships is probably where you'll end, where you'll end up, where you'll you'll transition. So I say right now, let's make this roadmap and let's remember that culture is at the core and relationship is, is the vehicle. You've been listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network. This week, we heard from Doria Robinson from Urban Tilth in Richmond, California, speaking at the Community Alliance for Global Justice about the desperate urgency of dismantling extractive economies and recreating our cultures of resistance as we move towards systemic change as the logical solution to climate justice and food security and sovereignty. If you want to find out more about Urban Tilth, including how to get involved or how to donate to help support their amazing programs and community projects, you can go to urbantilth.org or check them out on your socials. Today's audio was sourced with thanks from Seattle Community Media under Creative Commons license on archive.org. Earth Matters would like to thank the Community Radio Network for all their hard work in bringing you this program today and the Community Broadcasting Foundation for their generous support. Earth Matters is produced at 3CR Community Radio in Fitzroy, Melbourne, and we can be contacted at earthmatters3cr at gmail.com. That's all for now, but tune in next week for more environmental and social justice stories.
genocide here is a lot more sneaky than it is in Rwanda or other places around the world. It's one thing white fellas learnt in the last 200 years to be very sneaky about their genocide. You look at the 38 nations that were here before white settlement and then you count up the numbers that are still surviving, still out there doing their business on their country. Well, there's only 25 left, so what happened to the other 13? Let's talk about the Black GST. Genocide to be stopped, sovereignty acknowledged and treaties made. Tune in to Fire First every Wednesday from 11am till 12 midday on 3CR with Robbie Thorpe. Thank you, those people who have no land rights haven't got justice, but neither do those people who have land rights have justice. You're listening to Community Radio Network around Australia, brought to you by 3CR Community Radio. So stay tuned as we bring you news, live updates, music and interviews with Aboriginal people from around the country. The only free body we have is the Aboriginal government on the grassroots and the Aboriginal Embassy on the lawns outside the old Parliament House. We will not go away. And as that stone rests in that mountain, and as our spirit rests in this country, and over this country, we will not go away. Neither shall our power pass. And that's here forever, until justice comes. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.